through the book of 1 Peter. It's been rich and rewarding for me. I hope in, in many ways that God's made it rich and rewarding for you. Last week we looked at verses 6 and 7, and this morning we look at verses 8 through the conclusion of, of the book. Allow me to read beginning in the middle of verse 5 so we can follow his, his logic. Peter says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, most likely a reference to the church in Rome, who is likewise chosen sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. Peace to all of us here who are in Christ. Let's pray one last time. Lord, only you is our soul at rest. Only you are our stronghold in this day and age in which we live. Not too much different than what these believers were experiencing. We look to you, God, for the grace of understanding and receptivity. Would you do a work in each of our hearts, we pray now, for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you. Been reading a poem, a few poems actually, by... Christian poet from the Elizabethan era. Her name was Christina Rossetti. And this is her poem called Uphill. Does the road wind uphill all the way? Yes, to the very end. Will the day's journey take the whole long day? From morn to night, my friend. But is there for the night a resting place, a roof for when the slow dark hours begin. Oh, may not the darkness hide it from my face. You cannot miss that in. Shall I meet other wayfarers at night, those who've gone before? Then must I knock or, or call when, when just in sight? They'll not keep you standing at that door. Shall I find comfort? travel sore and weak of labor you shall find the sum but will there be beds for me and all who seek yea 
There'll be beds for all who come. She was writing about the inevitability of pains, difficulties, and sufferings, both in life, but also in particular for Christians. Troubles that touch everyone. No one's exempt. And sometimes, you know, sometimes all we need is not some huge theological treatise. We just need somebody to agree with us about this. It hurts. Moses did And he put it this way, he said, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. (laughs) And soon, they're gone, and we fly away. And while what Moses wrote is true for all people, that's the reality of life. What Peter has been writing about, and what Christina Rossetti was getting at, It's not simply the troubles of life that all people experience, but the sufferings that are unique to Christians. The hostilities that we experience or can experience because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We are elect exiles, he said. We are alien sojourners living in all sorts of nations, under all sorts of governments, under all sorts of authorities but we serve one king. And so this is what Peter has been writing about, what Paul referred to as tribulations when Paul said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's inevitable. Suffering now, glory later. That's Peter's mantra throughout this whole book. And so Peter has written 1 Peter, what we call 1 Peter, to provide living hope for the church, living hope for the persecuted people of God that they might stand firm. And he sums up everything he's written in this way. You heard him. He said, this is the true grace of God. I wrote to you briefly, but what I'm writing, he says, this is the true grace of God. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. Don't believe some other version of the grace of God that leaves you unchanged and unwilling to follow Christ. This is the true grace of God. Don't believe some other version of the gospel that leaves you comfortable without responsibilities that promises there's no suffering, health, wealth. You know, This is the true grace of God. Suffering now, glory later. Don't believe some other version of the gospel that offers some sort of naive optimism for this life and says there's no devil to be resisting no no this is the true grace of God there is an adversary this is the true grace of God suffering now glory later but Christ in you from beginning to end this is the grace of God And it's under that all-encompassing statement as he concludes, this is the true grace of God that I want to place those closing exhortations when he says, be sober-minded, be watchful, resist the devil, be firm in your faith, and so forth. All those take place under the umbrella of this is the true grace of God. In light of that, do these things, you see. Now, because we haven't read through the entire book recently, 
And though Peter said he wrote briefly, it hasn't been brief for us to study it, what I like to do is survey quickly, survey quickly, yes, I know, 14 points, it's okay. We made it through first hour. Survey, survey what Peter has said is the true grace of God throughout this letter, okay? And though Peter uses different language at times than Paul, than, than, than John, the true grace of God which Peter preaches, you'll see, is the same gospel of Paul, the same gospel of Jesus, the same gospel of John and the other apostles. So what is the true grace of God? First, you need to understand what grace is. And for some of you, maybe this is a, a, newer, a newer concept. What is grace? Well, there's many words in the Hebrew and the Greek and the Bible that are translated grace into English. But what is the concept of grace as it relates to our salvation? Well, it isn't, to, it isn't that God is permissive, you know, that he says, ah, let it be, you know. That's not grace. That's not the grace of God. It's not, grace is not God simply overlooking some things. It's not simply some sort of graciousness. Grace refers to God's divine favor. Favor that he shows to human beings. Active favor that reaches out towards and touches the lives of human beings. Grace, that God's favor freely sovereignly extended to not just undeserving human beings, but to ill-deserving human beings, because we deserve something, and it ain't grace, <laughs> and it isn't mercy. And so grace, grace is not that which merely makes salvation possible. It's grace that accomplishes our salvation from beginning to end from before the foundations of the world to eternity to come. Salvation is all of grace. This is the true grace of God. According to Peter, let's hear what he says. 14 characteristics, 14 workings of grace. I'll be flying back and forth starting in chapter 1. The true grace of God is grace that for loves Sinners, four loves. Look how he began the letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles, chosen, exiles. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. To say that is to say that as an act of, of, of free and unconditional grace, that is, God did not look at you and say, okay, then you, you're, you look good, so here I'll do something for you. As a free act of God's sovereign grace, he set his affection, his love on you. He foreloved you before the foundation of the world. And that's the, the, that's the implication of foreknowledge here. Why? Because God foreknows everything and everyone. But this is a special kind of foreknowledge. It's a foreloved. We say, that doesn't sound fair. God is not under obligation to love anyone. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's not one who understands. There's not one who seeks after God. Scripture says uh, that all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, God is under no obligation to anyone. 
but he has set his love upon some before the foundation of the world. The true grace of God is grace that loves sinners, and it's grace that sets apart to God, sets these sinners apart to himself. Verse 2, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Remember what the word sanctify means. It means to consecrate, to set something or someone apart for a specific use. Those whom God has foreloved, he has sanctified, set apart for himself through the ministry and the working of the Holy Spirit. Jesus prayed for the church that we would be sanctified, that we would be set apart, and that's what God has done. He has taken believers out of the, the, the general crowd, as it were, of fallen humanity, and now he says here in Peter's second, uh, second chapter, verse 9, we are now a people for God's own possession because we've been sanctified by the Spirit. The true grace of God is a grace that atones for our sin in its entirety. Still in verse 2 of chapter 1, we've been elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and here it is, for sprinkling with his blood. And that sprinkling there that Peter's referring to is an allusion to the blood of the sacrificial bulls sprinkled by Moses on the altar, which spoke of God's forgiveness. How? Forgiveness grounded upon his acceptance of the sacrifice of a substitute which atones, atones, for human guilt. And no one has atoned for their sins by the blood of bulls or goats or, or lambs, but th that blood pointed to what? The blood of whom? The Son of God. The blood of the Savior. Chapter 1, verse 18, and we have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And here you see the beautiful Trinitarian salvation that is ours. We are foreloved by the Father, chosen before the foundation of the world, sanctified by the Spirit, sprinkled with the blood of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The true grace of God does those things and does more. The true grace of God is the grace that gives new life that awakens us to what God's done. It's called the new birth, chapter one, verse three still. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, here it is, he has caused us to be born again. He caused us, we don't birth ourselves, neither physically nor spiritually, but he causes us by his mercy to be born again, born anew. We Christians, if you're a believer today, we Christians, we're all spiritually dead. Like all human beings, we come into this world naturally unknowing God, resisting God, blind to our sin, blind to our guilt. We do not know the true God. But then we experience a new birth. And we receive the benefits of what the Trinitarian God's done for us. The benefits of his electing grace, his sanctifying grace, his forgiving, atoning grace. And how is it 
How is it that that new birth took place if you don't birth yourself, if he causes you to be born again? Well, it's rooted in his grace, that's to be sure. But how did it come about? It came about, verse 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Well, this whole book is the word of God, but what, what word is living and abiding in me? Verse 25 at the end, this word, that living abiding word by which you were born again, this word is the good news that was preached to you. That's it, the good news, the gospel. That's what the good news is. That's what the gospel means. The good news of what? Not of what you need to achieve, not about how hard you ought to try, not how you ought to better yourself. The good news of what? That despite who you are, despite what you've ever done in your life, God has achieved the means of reconciling himself to you and you to him. And he's achieved it by sending his own son into this world to live the life that you ought to live under God's law. And he did it sinlessly. You and I, no one will ever do that. And then he died the death that you deserve. And that was not just the death on a cross, but the death that paid for sin and guilt and endured the wrath of God the Father. And then he was raised from the dead, you see. And that was the good news that was preached to you, that salvation has been accomplished, and it's yours to do what? To receive, to believe, to, not, to acknowledge your need, repent of the fact that you're a sinner, and simply reach out in faith and receive it, you see. That's how all those benefits of what God has done by his grace touched your life. That's how it reached you. You say, but it's strange that it reached me when my cousin, when my brother, when my friend, when my parents were there listening to the same gospel message, but they don't believe. You see, many hear, but few are called. And in hearing that word that saves, some are called. We are wooed irresistibly by the good news and the power of the Holy Spirit convinced that this is true. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, chapter 1, verse 15, He who called you. He didn't just preach the gospel to you. He, he called you in the midst of hearing the gospel. In verse eight, 9 of chapter 2, down at the bottom, well, bottom of my page, <laughs> He is the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, you see. So that's how that grace reached you. The true grace of God for loved sinners sets them apart, uh, consecrates them, atones for their sin, and then gives them new birth through the living word, which is the gospel, by calling certain individuals to faith. But it doesn't then leave us there. The true grace of God enables obedience. It doesn't just give us a new standing, forgiven, but a new potential. The capacity to follow Christ. He says again at the very beginning of this letter, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, we have been made elect in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And what God sets out to do, he won't fail to do. Just as he doesn't fail to cover our sins with the sprinkling of the blood, he won't fail to empower us so that we can obey Christ. 
Verse 14, chapter 1, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be be holy in all your behavior, since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then down before, he says that you are, verse down in 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, you see. You say, well, I hear, I hear the imperatives there. I hear the, I hear the commands, be holy, be obedient, love, your, love each other, but where's the enablement? <laughs> what the gospel asks you to do, it empowers you to do. You say, but where was it in, in what you read? Well, verse, it's always woven in there. Verse 18, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers. You've been bought out of a market, the slavery to sin market. You've been bought, bought out. You've been ransomed. You don't belong there anymore. There's been a change. And what kind of word is now, what kind of seed or word has been implanted in you? A living word, an abiding word. It doesn't go away. It's a seed that's been placed in you. It gives life and it doesn't stop giving that life. You have this new potential to obey. In chapter 2, verse 24, Peter said, He himself, speaking of Christ, He himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, there's the substitution, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, notice the past tense, you have been healed. You have been healed. You, 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 you've been healed of the consequences of sin, healed of the guilt of sin, and healed of the bondage of sin, set free from its power over you. Oh, the chains have released, right? We sang together. As Paul puts it, To be united to Christ by faith is to have died his death, right? Died to sin and to be made alive in God. That's the healing that every Christian has has received. These are realities that you have experienced by virtue of being born again. They're not accomplishments that you need to achieve. It's happened to you. You have died to sin. You're alive to God alive to righteousness, you've been healed through your union with Jesus Christ. And so that's why we expect there to be the capacity for obedience, and this obedience is the fruit of, 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 of being saved and belonging. It is not uh, the root of being justified or forgiven. In chapter 3 of 1 John, the apostle John puts it this way, bringing together some of the same ideas, 1 John 3, 9, he says, no one born of God, there's the new birth, right? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. That meaning that's, that their lifestyle is not the same. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed, that living abiding word, abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God, you see. Born again, healed set free from sin's bondage, alive to righteousness. There'll be a new capacity. And then he just says it plainly. Look, he says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. 
whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For God is love, right? And he's taught us to love one another. And so the true grace of God does not leave us incapacitated. It produces, enables obedience, and it produces growth. Chapter 2, verse 2, that's number 6. Chapter 2, verse 2, Peter says to his readers, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. We said that's a reference to the Word of God. Long for that pure spiritual milk of the Word of God, that by it you may grow up. You grow, you see, into salvation. If obedience has primarily to do with decisions, outright actions, things you do, holy living, loving, etc., growth has to do with what's inside you, God's transforming you, growing you, changing your motivations, changing your aspirations, changing your affections, you see. And you are being built up. You're growing. You're growing by the Word, and you're also growing by the power of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, You yourselves, you Christians, you are like living stones. You are being built up being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. The, the, the being built up emphasizes what? That we aren't building ourselves up primarily. That God is the builder. He's building. He's building you and you and you like a living stone and he's placing us one on top of the other, one next to the other and together we're being built up and individually we're being built up into salvation. That's the true grace of God. The true grace of God enables obedience and produces change, produces growth, because it is an inner working of the living, abiding Word and the Holy Spirit. Paul himself referred to the same things. He used different imagery. He refers to us as the temple, the new temple of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says to the church, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We sang that. Hallelujah. The cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Yeah. The mystery of what Paul says is Christ in you, the hope of glory, changing you. The true grace of God produces growth, therefore sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's almost invisible, huh? We find ourselves asking, even of our own selves sometimes, am I in the faith? But to those who belong to him, there will be change. Praise God, you're concerned that itself may be growth. That may be the working of the Spirit. The true grace of God creates community because we're living stones built one upon another. He doesn't leave us to ourselves. Again, chapter 2, verse 5, as he put it there, he says, you as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. A house. Paul uses the word temple. Elsewhere, the word household. The emphasis on family. The true grace of God doesn't leave us to, to live in isolation. God places us in, in vital relationships with other Christians. 
where we are all priests in this new spiritual household, ministering God's grace to each other. Yes, a community of, 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 uh, of love in the body of Christ. Number eight, you still with me? Okay. <laughs> a little more than halfway. The true grace of God, number eight, is grace that provides a new identity. Identity was a big theme throughout this book. A new identity, chapter 2, verse 9, he says, In contrast to those whom we sang about, those who rejected the cornerstone, you, Christians, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, you're all sorts of people scattered all over the world. You were pagans. You followed all these different idols, but now you are a people. Now you are, he says, God's people. What a title, huh? We're God's people, man. We belong to him. God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's where our identity lies in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's made us by being united to him. And we repeatedly saw, we emphasized the importance of self-identity because that's a big point in the culture today, is it not? Self-identity, you can choose your identity. I identify as this, and I identify as that. Well, I identify as always being right about everybody's identity. How's that? Huh? <laughs> I haven't said that to anybody yet, but uh, I've thought it a thousand times. <laughs> and what's so important about self-identity? Well, listen, how you answer the question, who are you? will inevitably lead then, well, then what are you here for? Who are you, you see? Affects everything you do in your life, you see. Are you an evolutionary, biological, cosmic accident? That's it? A haphazard cosmic something that just happened? If that's your identity, well, then why are you concerned about anything? Where do you get right from wrong? What do you get calling me wrong? I mean, what do you care about anything? Everything's an accident, including you, including what you just thought. Who are you, you say? You. You, he says to the Christian church, and he takes identifiers, markers of God's covenant people from the Old Testament, and he says to all these scattered Gentiles, he says, you now are part of what? This people of God holy nation, kingdom of priests. You belong to him. That's what he says. That's your, that's your identity, beloved. Your identity as a Christian is not defined by what you are in and of yourself, good and bad, your strengths, your weaknesses, nor by what you choose to identify as, as the culture says. Your identity as a Christian is bound up entirely in what God, by His grace, has done for you in Christ, is doing for you in Christ, and will do for you in Christ. There's your identity. 
And when you understand that and you say, who are you? I'm a member, a member of the people of God, a chosen race. I'm a royal priest, a member of a holy nation. Then what are you here for? To proclaim the excellencies of the one who called me out of darkness and into his marvelous light by virtue of my, what I say and how I live, the choices I make, etc. That's the true grace of God. The true grace of God, number nine, is grace that sustains on this uphill journey, sustains with hope. Hope. The grace of God gives us hope and sustains us with this hope. This has been a central part of Peter's message. Going all the way back to verse 3 of chapter 1 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to or unto a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 13, the middle of the verse. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying is that when you are saved, when you, when you are now in Christ, and that in Christ believers have been given the hope of future glory which cannot be taken away from them. Why? Because verse 4, it's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and here it is, kept in heaven for you. No one can touch what God, no one can alter what God's plan is for you and me in eternity to come. No pain could steal it. No thief, no moth, no rust destroy it. And so it's grace that sustains us when we keep our eyes focused. As he says, verse 13, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. We need to have those eyes of our hearts set upon that. We are second coming people. Suffering now, glory later. Suffering now, glory later. Worldly hope is not like that at all, right? We said in normal speech, in normal speech, hope is a, a sort of general optimism that has a built-in possibility of failure, right? I hope it's not hot today there is the built-in possibility of failure. <laughs> but Christian hope is different. Christian hope is an assured conviction created in you by the Holy Spirit, an assured conviction about God's promised future. It is a certain prospect that is not yet consummated, but will be. And that's why you hope, you look to it. We keep focusing on that in this book because that's what Peter says is going to sustain us through the, uh, the difficulties of this life is to remember this life is not all there is. In fact, it's a little while as he refers to it. A little while compared to forever. The true grace of God is grace that purifies with suffering. It purifies us with suffering. Suffering is sent into our life, but it's not aimless, it's not purposeless. Back in chapter 1 again, he says, verse 6, in this you rejoice, meaning that, the, that you know that uh, you have this imperishable inheritance, and in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, meaning 
Not everybody suffers the same way, but if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The suffering that God allows to come into our lives is suffering that is meant to test. What it meant, and what does that mean? Perfect, mature, complete, purify our faith. Is your faith real, you see? And so God sends heat. He sends the furnace. People that come to you with hostility for the gospel, they mean ill against you. God means good for you. And both of them are at work in your experiences. But God, if you're a Christian, is always working for your good. And so through suffering, our faith is strengthened. It is, it's clarified to yourself that your faith is genuine. That God sustained you. He kept you through that. By that, I don't mean that you, you live sinlessly. I mean that you didn't abandon your commitment to him. You stayed true to the faith. It's grace that purifies with suffering. And in fact, we were told repeatedly in Peter that this is all a part of the plan of God. Right. Chapter 2, most clearly, chapter 2, verse 21 Reading above in verse 20, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Oh, you said something at work. You did the right thing. You were honest. You remained pure. And you suffered for it. People got mad at you. People insulted you. Someone uh, said that you broke their heart. People left you. You got fired. But this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Why? For to this you've been called. You've been called not only to forgiveness and joy and resurrection, but you've been called to this. For to this you've been called, he says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Remember, that means what? To trace the outline of his life. Indeed, that's what we are. Little Christs, Christians. Suffering now, glory later. The cross now, the crown later. That's part of what God's design is. So he, Peter keep, kept coming to these people, telling them, don't, don't, don't be surprised. Don't run from it. Understand God's at work. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. Tell yourself, this is necessary. It's going to happen. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. There it is, to purify, to, to perfect you. As though something strange were happening to you. No, you've been called to this. Don't think it to be strange. Remember, God is at work in it. And he will sustain you. He'll purify you. Verse, finally, verse um. 14 there, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. They hated me, said Jesus. They'll hate you. And now you know that spirit, that spirit of God and the glory that's coming is resting upon you. The grace of, the true grace of God, beloved, is also grace that empowers to serve. Chapter 4, verse 10. When the grace of God reaches 
person. It not only atones for their sin and awakens them to who God is and then puts them in a family and then, and then empowers them to be able to obey and begins to, to produce growth in their hearts and their minds over time. Not only does the true grace of God do that and give you a new identity, but when it comes to you, it also gifts you. It gives you a grace gift, a capacity to have a place in the church, a role in the body of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 10, what did Peter say? He said, as each has received a gift. Stop there for a moment. Each has received a gift. There's not a single one. There's not a single Christian, however young, however old, however new to the faith, that has not received a charis, a gift, a grace gift from God. What's it for? He goes on, use it, use it to serve one another as a good steward of God's varied grace. And then remember, he he divides all the spiritual gifting into two, into two categories. Speaking, serving. <laughs> if God's gifted you to speak, like maybe counsel someone one-on-one, or maybe disciple a group of three, or, or maybe it's teach a Sunday school class, or maybe it's stand up in front and preach to a few hundred people. If, if you have been gifted to speak, he says, speak as it were the oracles of God. And if he's gifted you to serve, that is to serve other people in any other multitude of ways, right? Then serve, not in your own strength, but serve in the strength that he supplies so that he will receive the glory, right? And that happens a lot around here when you see people exhausted by serving the body of Christ. But in their exhaustion, in your exhaustion, God is being glorified because how, how did you do that? That's how, because <laughs> he gave me the capacity to do that. Yeah, that's the true grace of God. It empowers to serve, and the true grace of God, number 12, is grace that cares for sufferers. When we are on this uphill journey on that walk, he doesn't leave us alone. Some people have a view of the Christian life, like, you know, you, you, your sins are forgiven. Great, you're on the road. Here's a backpack. Bless you, man. <laughs> it's going to be a long haul. No, it's not all on you. He cares for you, we saw last week, right? Verses 6 through 7 of chapter 5. I'll read, remember, in the middle of chapter 5, he said, Listen, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Who is he talking to when he says that? He's talking to suffering Christians, Christians that were wrestling with remaining true with the suffering or some of them maybe trying to to survive this persecution in their own strength or taking it upon themselves or some who are complaining, who's God to send this into my life? And he says, listen, don't do that. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So what? Humble yourself in the midst of your trials. Humble yourself. Humble yourself before God and he'll lift you up. You admit that it was too much for you. or You admit that you've taken on too much or you admit that uh, in your arrogance you were, you were starting to criticize God. Like, almost like Job, you know, what have I done? 
to deserve this. No, you humble yourselves. Why should we humble? That he may exalt you. How do I humble myself? Verse 7, by casting all your anxieties on him. Remember that from last week. Because he cares for you. That means what? It matters to him about you. He, it matters to him that you're where you're at. However you got where you're at, it matters to him that you're there. <laughs> and so you cast that net before these anxieties crush you. And particularly he's talking to those people who are suffering for the hostilities. He said you, you, you place these things upon God. It matters to him. He cares for you. Chapter 225, he called him the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Sometimes difficult circumstances and hostilities in particular against the faith on this uphold journey may seem like God doesn't care. But he does. It matters to him. It's the grace that carries our burdens with us. The grace that hears our concerns is the grace that sees our afflictions and matters to him that you're experiencing these afflictions. So it's the true grace of God does not leave us to this life alone. And 13, the true grace of God is grace that protects from the enemy. Verses 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What should we do? Verse 9, resist him. Resist. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Don't think that you're the only one going through this. Don't think that, that it's all zeroed in on you. Woe is me. I'm the only one that suffers like this. No, you're not. That's the devil talking to you, seeking to devour your faith and your joy. This is what every Christian must face. And after you have suffered a little while. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Is he going to fail if that's what he's called you to? No. He will not fail. That's why there's an after. He himself will, with his grace, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Uh, that's a man. That's a man who lost a battle to who lost a, a battle to the devil one night when he said, I do not know Jesus Christ three times. But he didn't lose the war because the war wasn't his. It was Christ's. And he was restored. Here's a man who knows what he's talking about. Right? Who can say, he'll restore you. He'll establish you firm. But you got to be alert to him, you see. You say, but you said it's grace that protects. I'm hearing a lot of imperatives again, you know. Resist, you know. Watch out. Be watchful, etc. What do you mean grace that protects? Well, because, again, after a little while. Because there's an after, that means you'll make it. <laughs> and how did he tell us? He told us directly in chapter 1 that, that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, and it does you no good if you don't get there. Right? Verse 5, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith. You are being guarded through faith. That is, faith is always what clings to Christ, and he guards your faith. 
you who are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's how we know that the true grace of God is not the kind of grace that allows people to then lose their salvation. No longer justified, no longer forgiven, and if I died in this state of having fallen from grace, I'm going to hell. That is not the true grace of God. This is the true grace of God. That he who called you to his eternal glory after a little while will himself the God of all grace himself will do these things for you, you see. And that, is, that brings us to the very last one, the grace that culminates with glory. God's grace doesn't drop the ball. He doesn't trip rounding third base. It's all the way home. From beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity future. This is the true grace of God. It ends in what? It ends in resurrection, sharing in the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, and, 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 and John say the same things, we shall be made like him because we'll see him as he is. Paul says, this mortal will one day put on the immortal and this perishable will one day put on the imperishable. Do you believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified outside Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, that he was a real, literal, historical human being? Do you believe that he was crucified, he was buried three days, and that three days later he was raised literally bodily from the dead? Do you believe that? Well, then just as sure as he was raised from the dead, so all those who are in Christ will be raised from the dead. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat. Not by me, but not through me, but through Christ in me. This is the true grace of God. The grace that for love sinners, sets apart to God, atones for sin, gives new life, enables obedience, produces growth, creates community, provides new identity, sustains with hope, purifies with suffering, empowers you to serve, cares for your suffering, protects you ultimately from the enemy, and culminates in glory. This is the true grace of God. Now listen to his exhortations in that context, right? If this is true, if this is the true grace of God, he says three main things to us at the end of his letter. Rest in God's care. Humble yourself. Cast your anxieties on him. Don't be proud. Secondly, heed God's warnings. There is such a thing as, as a devil. The Bible teaches that there is and there exists personal, personal, supernatural evil. And it is, he is your adversary. Sometimes he's called a lion. He seeks to intimidate. More often he's a serpent because he seeks to undermine and he's sly as he goes about his ways Heed God's warnings. He's your adversary. He seeks to devour. He says he can't devour your eternal soul because you belong to Christ. He devours your faith, your joy, your hope. He wants to what? He wants to set you 
apart for himself since he lost you to God. You triumph by trusting what God says, not what he says. He's called the slanderer. Why is he called the slanderer? Because he slanders you and he slanders God. He comes to you when you fail, and he, when you sin, and he says, well, there you go again. You call yourself a Christian. <laughs> wow, what a Christian you are. You did that again. <laughs> he slanders God when life gets hard. Oh, so this is what your heavenly Father has for you, huh? <laughs> this is how God loves you, huh? He slanders God, he slanders you, and he seeks to create doubts. Has God really said? Does that really mean that? It can't be a hell. I won't end like that. And so he says, rest in God's care. It starts there. Humble yourself, then heed God's warnings. Stay firm. And then trust God's promises. Verse 10. This life is a little while. There is an eternity. He is the God of all grace. He himself will actively confirm, restore, and establish you. And that may refer to only the end, or it may refer to things he does along the way, culminating in the end. I think that's been my experience. That was Peter's experience. He was restored in this life and he will be established firmly before the Lord in eternity so I just finished by asking you is this the grace of God that you know ah, good <laughs> is this the grace of God as you have understood it see is this the grace of God that you've been that you have been ruminating on, or is there some other version of how things work? You see, it's your understanding of grace. Uh, God helps those who help themselves. No. You understand grace to provide forgiveness for all my sins, but then leaves you unchanged, unable to follow Christ. I can't do that. I can't say no. Your version of grace, a grace that forgives you but then allows you to live the rest of your life as an island to yourself? Or has he gifted you to serve the body? You see, there, there's a lot of distortions of the true grace. Is the grace that you've heard a grace that says, listen, your sins are forgiven, but this life is all there really is, so grab all the gusts you can while you can because that's what life's about. No, this is the true grace of God. Suffering now, glory later. The cr cross now, crown later. I hope this is the grace that you know. If there's any doubt in your mind, your heart, whether or not you are really resting in the true grace of God, whether the grace, this grace is the grace that reached you, has touched you, then just talk to God. His arms are wide open. Jesus himself says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Humble yourself before God. Tell him you don't sure, you're not sure, you don't understand, because God is opposed to the proud, but he always will give grace to the humble. Amen?
Let's pray and give our gifts to the Lord.